Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Tim Rasmussen, and you're listening to Pop Violence. First, I want to say thank you for listening and for tuning in to this first episode of the Pop Violence podcast. For this first episode, I'm going to be having a conversation with my older sister and lifelong friend Jacqueline about the 1998 film, The Truman Show. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. (laughs) Now, in addition to being one of my personal favorites, The Truman Show is a, a profound movie in a lot of ways. A lot of people have expressed such to me in different uh, diverse reactions. And I found that a lot of that has to do with the fact that it is so unique and it's so odd. And I think at the most basic level though, it's a human film. And that's sort of where Jacqueline and I start off in our conversation. What did you, what did you think about? Like, what was your, I mean, obviously you just said it was scary, but. Well, so I know I I obviously hadn't seen it before, but I had heard about it. So it wasn't like I was like completely unspoiled. Yeah, that's true. I so I knew the general gist of things, so there wasn't anything like hugely surprising. Yeah. But I still there were still like like certain scenes where you're just like, whoa, I'm gonna have <sighs> to like I'm gonna have to like sit with that for a second <laughs> really think about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then also there were certain parts where um, maybe because I never saw I've maybe just because I've seen so many other Jim Carrey films after that he did after this. Yeah. Um, there were like certain points in this video where I was like, why is he acting like Ace Ventura now? Oh, or yeah. what, you know what I mean? Or I was like, why is he like, why is he moving his body in that strange way? Like the Grinch does or whatever. Like, yeah. Because I think this is what he did kind of first, right? Um, I'm not completely sure. Like the or- some of those early Jim Carrey films, because um, this is this one's from '98, so it's not like his earliest. Um, mm. And I don't know, I don't know the full order of Jim Carrey's career, but this is definitely yeah. before. This is before The Grinch, and it's before right. like, some of those other ones. I don't know. It's probably contemporary, or it might be after Ace Ventura and around the same time as the mask and all those but i mean i i felt like he his role like his acting was i totally agree with that like he was he just he just plays the role so well of like the most like domestic like docile looking sounding <laughs> person and then when he's sort of like a little bit gets a little ecstatic and eccentric in some of the scenes you're like whoa like is he insane or is he just is he deranged like what's going on here you know yeah, well, but even even like the very very first scene, I feel like he's already being very Jim Carrey ish. Yes. Like when he's he's like looking into his 
medicine cabinet in his bathroom yeah, and he's like yes. talking to himself I like didn't I didn't like expect that coming into the movie I thought I thought I guess I just thought he was gonna be more more like I don't like typical more like normal like <laughs> not a that normal like actor <laughs> yeah or just yeah yeah that they were gonna make him seem like really really straight laced kind of boring and then he was gonna like gradually get like strange but they just kind of like opened opened up with <laughs> with that yeah well and i like but it. then that also that made me think like i was like i mean what if what is normal though because if yeah. if someone was filming me 24 hours a day seven days a week like they'd they're they'd see me do weird stuff that oh, they yeah. think that i was a weirdo too so <laughs> i don't know <laughs> yeah no definitely no i i took yeah that was that's what i was gonna say like that's why i loved i love that opening scene because right off the bat you get the idea filmmakers like send the message right from the very get-go this truman lives in a world where like his privacy is invaded right and yeah. like you know like of the like some like random intimate like i think everybody like has like weird moments when they're looking in the mirror sometimes yeah. and like they open up with that scene of like him looking in the mirror and um and them and people watching it and so that's yeah it's kind of freaky it's super freaky yeah but i'm curious as well you said like there were some scenes where you were you were like whoa like they kind of freaked you out i'm wondering like what scenes you're talking about i think that that scene that okay. very first scene was the first one where i was like oh man like what would it be like if <laughs> if if there were just cameras on me all the time yeah. um and, and it's funny you know. be, yeah because that 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 just made me it made me think about both because i um i watch a little bit of reality television you know that i like yeah watching sure. the bachelor a lot and i've but i've heard and I've liked Americans Next Top Models and stuff. I've heard interviews from people that have been on those shows that have talked about how how hard that is because they literally have cameras on them all the time, except for when they're like in the shower. Um, yeah, yeah. And for Americans Next Top Model, it was like even in the, even in the bathroom. Yeah. It was just yeah, yeah. So like yeah, it made me think about that and like how weird it is that we like all consume that. But then, mm -hmm. yeah. But then you think about like, well, at least they're like consenting adults. They signed up for it. So whereas yes. in this world, like Truman didn't sign up for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, that, and, and, and that's like part of the novelty or part of the value, I guess, of Truman, according to the creator, Christoph is like, this is the most genuine thing because he doesn't even know he's being filmed. Right. Right. And that, that actually, another thing, um, I, I don't, I don't know if it, there was like a specific, well, yeah, I guess it's so when they, um, they do that like montage where they kind of like show him from like his ultrasound picture at, through his life, you know, yeah, yeah, that, that made me feel weird about, and I've, and I've had this thought before, but it just kind of connected it about the people who I feel like and I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to make people mad at me, but like, I feel like, the people, I know, I feel like I know where you're going with this and I'm excited. <laughs> the, the people that like monetize and exploit their babies on Instagram, that's what, or, yes. or on YouTube. Yes. It made me feel weird about that. And I felt weird about that before, but this like really connected the dots for me because I feel like those kids are not consenting to that. And I've, I've often thought that because I actually have several friends from college yeah. that, have a certain level of Instagram notoriety that 
put their kids on there a lot. <laughs> and, yeah. And I remember when that first became a thing, thinking like, what is your kid going to think when your kid's like 12 or 13 or 15? And they start to realize like, oh, people all over the world, like know my name and know my face. And they yeah. didn't get to make that choice for themselves. So one time I was, I was babysitting a friend's child at my house. Oh. This is, in, yeah. this is towards the end of college. And another friend came over to the house and like saw the kid and was like, oh, is that so-and-so? Like knew the name of the kid. Is that so-and-so's kid? Like, oh my gosh. And like, we like this sort of like weird fangirl uh, uh, like reaction to seeing this like two-year-old. And I was like, mm, like, I don't like how that made me feel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And that's like super, I mean, that's like Truman, that's like Truman to a T. I mean, yeah. So hopefully people, hopefully people listening can sort of like, uh, you know, maybe resonate with that. It's kind of interesting. I've seen this movie like four or five times. And it's one of my favorites. It used to be on Netflix like a year, like two years ago. And so I'd watch it sometimes just because I don't know, I, I, I enjoy a little bit of an intellectual, uh, you know, exploration and I, it does that for me but it's also like pretty comfort comfortable to watch like it doesn't like get me all riled up really so but this time more than any other time I felt like there were so many parallels that I was noticing between like the age of social media that we're living in right now and this movie and I was like did, did this movie like pre like this was almost like I felt like it was like a prediction of the future or something and I think that what you just said was a really good example of that with you know, the children sort of being used without their own consent and sort of, and, and I think it goes even like deeper because, you know, the, ins, like if we use the Instagram influencer as the, the case to look at, like, you know, they're just selling like random products. They're selling everything. And there's even a quote from the film that Kristoff says when he's asked, he's asked in the interview, um, you know, he, so he has an interview with the, the TV station um and there's like several like really good lines in that uh part so the show the tv show truman show in the world it's on 24 hours a day no interruptions no commercials mm -hmm. um and so he asked him about that and you get these staggering revenues through product placement and Kristoff says everything on the show is for sale from the actor's wardrobe food products to the very homes they live in and so that's like a that's like a, i guess a pretty brief quote but but isn't that like so similar to like what we see in like Instagram nowadays? Oh yeah. Yeah. We're like a, an influencer who just will post a picture of themselves with their family or like, or whatever. And then you click on it and there's like five brands that are tagged Yeah. and you see their caption is something like super cutesy. And then underneath the caption, like five, you know, paragraphs down or whatever, it's like top by this, like uh, bottoms I'm wearing is this. And like the yeah. chair, chair I'm sitting on is from this. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it, that, that like kind of like prompts me to like try to dig even further, but like, what's the problem with that? Like, why is that problematic, you know, or in what ways is that problematic? And I'm not sure I've like fully, I mean, I think that part of it is like, part of it is exposed in the film. I think it's like the commod commodification of like, of life, right? Like, mm -hmm. and we've talked about this before, I think like with Instagram, like Instagram used to be a place where you would just like share pictures with your friends and you've tried to keep your Instagram account that way. Like you try not to like follow any businesses if, and I, I, if, if I understand if you're still doing it that way, but yeah, trying yeah. to like keep it just like a friend to friend thing. And like, yeah, we're just sharing pictures of our lives. And, um, 
you know, having photographs be a medium for people to share about their lives with each other and to connect with each other. And to see that in the last like 10 years or however long Instagram has been around transformed from like, you know, photography and pictures being this medium for sharing about each other and for human connection has now become commodified to the point where it's, you know, I feel like most of what I see on Instagram is either news or like sports or, you know, other weird things. Um, or it's, it's people selling things. Like there's hardly any posts anymore. People are just like posting about their life. Um, well, there's yeah. some, but well, it, there would be, there would be if you set your Instagram up like mine, but yeah, 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 yeah you're totally true. right. Well, the reason that I, I, because mine started to get that way and I was like, what? I don't want all this. I just want, <laughs> I just want to see my friends and know what they're doing. So I purged my whole Instagram and got rid of yeah. anything. And I, I, my rule is that I don't follow anyone that I don't know personally, that I haven't like spoken to in person and talked to personally. Okay. And like I said, just because I, I think I was just in college at like the prime time for Instagram influencers to be kind of blowing up, especially yeah. where we went to in college in Hawaii, yeah. which really lends itself to like beautiful pictures and that influencer lifestyle. That means that I follow, I still, and I still follow like several people that I think you could categorize as influencers. The only reason I follow them is because I actually, I do, I know them. The thing I'll throw out there for like the problematic nature of the commodification, I think is reflected in, in the Truman show as well as like in social media, but also in like, like every sphere of, of our society, I would say just like by the nature of our society being a, a one that is, you know, like neoliberalism, just sort of meaning like, you know, everything is, we, there's this ideal that like, oh, everything can sort of be determined by the market and the market is the the driver of all things. And just like the degradation of not only culture, which I think is like is something and that's something that um, I actually coming into this podcast was one of the theorists that I was getting into a theorist named Adorno. And he talks about this thing called the culture industry, basically described as that the power structure that emerges in society with like sort of the haves and the have nots, the rich and the poor and those who sort of are power holders and those who who you know really will probably never be able to gain power that part of the reason why that they they keep part of the way that they keep things the keep the order that way is through culture and he makes this like distinction between how basically capitalism in the market like infiltrates the culture and once it infiltrates the culture then the culture doesn't push people to do any critical thinking. It just pushes people to, to consume and to just sort of continue to be cogs in like a machine that, that, you know, it could be beneficial to them. It could be not beneficial to them, but they never question it. Right. And so I thought that was like really interesting as well. Um, but I also found it interesting that as soon as like Truman starts to like, things start to tick, for him and he starts to things start to spin and he's starting to notice that things aren't quite right the advertisements become like like more clear to him and they become the things some of the things that are that are setting him off and i think that that is like mostly shown through the conversation like that really heated conversation after he comes comes home and he's having that fight with uh merrill why do you want to have a baby with me 
You can't stand me. That's not true. Why don't you let me fix you some of this new Mococo drink? All natural cocoa beans from the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua. No artificial sweeteners. What the hell are you talking about? Who are you talking to? I've tasted other cocos. This is the best. What the hell does this have to do with anything? Tell me what's happening! Well, you're having a nervous breakdown. That's what's happening. You're part of this, aren't you? What's up, Pop Violence listeners? This is Tim. I just want to give a quick plug for the platform that I use to curate and publish Pop Violence, Anchor.fm. If you are looking into starting a podcast, I would say that Anchor is a great option. It's free. You've got all your editing tools right there on the website. And it's really simple to get your stuff distributed to a lot of different listening platforms. And so if you want to go check it out, Go check out the Anchor app, download it for free, or at anchor.fm if you're interested in getting started. So there you have it. My uh, half-winded but still relevant uh, attempt at describing Theodore Adorno's culture industry. And this is just one, one acute way that the film The Truman Show relates to what is sort of broadly referred to as critical social theory, an approach to understanding society. And from here, uh, Jacqueline and I continue the conversation talking about media. And I think that you'll find it's particularly salient um, as the conversation develops. The entire film, I think, like has some reflection or causes one to reflect a little bit on just like the media in general and just like how especially like broadcast television and even like the the news and things like that, um, like populate our our conceptualizations of reality. And so that's another piece of it, I think, that is is interesting and like compelling to think about. I don't know. I don't know if you have. Yeah, I, no, I thought um, it's super interesting how every single time he is consuming media, it's like a hundred percent meant to control him. Like yeah. from the very beginning oh, yeah. of the movie, he's like in his car and it's like talking about how like dangerous flying is. And then when yeah. he's like watching TV at one point, they're talking about how like how lovely and safe it is to just stay at home and never leave and like things yeah, like yeah. that yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, yeah so that makes you think like man you gotta watch you gotta watch what media you consume because it really does like in, influence your your like view on life yes yeah definitely even the i thought the funniest uh, example of that was in like the travel agency there's like the big poster of the the plane getting struck by lightning it says it could happen to you as <laughs> i thought that was <laughs> yeah. hilarious I'm like, why do they even put a travel agency in there in the first place? Uh, but anyway, 
yeah, <laughs> maybe that maybe point. that's a, maybe that's a plot hole or maybe that's just like a really interesting um a really interesting point to make well travel agencies were a lot bigger in the 90s so that's true that's or they were true. like a thing that existed at this point you might be like me um starting to at this point you might be like me starting to think they're scratching on something i've heard before the media controlling people dominating the way that they conceptualize reality it's, it's really not that different of a conversation than the conversations that are being had by those who are these sort of right-wing extremists in the united states right now that most recently led an assault on the capitol in order to overturn the election operating under this idea that the media is just feeding out all these lies and and things like that and so this conversation by the media becomes very touchy and that's something that jacqueline brings up head on here and listen as we try to get into it and and we struggle to sort of draw out this uh comparison because the question becomes very difficult to answer and that's the question of whether or not the truman show this film that has so much to do with shedding of reality and the constructing of new reality is it the reflection of the socially conscious or is it the reflection of the right-wing conspiracy theorist and like i said listen to this and hear how we sort of reason with that and struggle to reason with that wondering about i don't know if you'll want to use this for your podcast but yeah. it was something that kind of hit me mm. um a little bit there's especially it's especially it's a, it came off of a line in that fight with merrill that he has okay and i can't remember the exact line but he he's basically he starts he's questioning everything and then she's like she's like well if everybody's in on it then i would have to be in on it too you don't think i'm in on it do you yeah and um i was thinking about that line in almost the like the like the opposite way like i feel like we could we can look at this movie and we can say like it's good for us all to be skeptical and don't ever just like accept norms and be like question things but at the same time like how like you don't ever want to dive too far into that because because that's where you that's where you start thinking that that the hollywood people are lizard people and that they're yeah. bathing in the blood of fetuses and things like that and there's tunnels underneath the united states like yeah. you know what i mean so yeah. it's like what how do, where where's the line between uh-huh. question like where like healthy skeptic skepticism turns into like scary conspiracy theory i guess yeah. is what i was wondering well and one of the things i think with that 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 comes to mind is that's one of the reasons I think that this movie is great is that they don't dive into the like a lot of like the nitty gritty details of how physically the the Sea Haven Dome is like carried out in the sense that like they keep it like vague enough and like sort of like not like vague, but they keep it like almost like objective in a way where it's sort of it's very like transcendent like the the the, what he's what he's questioning and there are parts where he seems like a crazy conspiracy theorist that's for sure but um and i and i totally agree with you like we definitely like don't want to get in that sense but i think once once you start to like see the world as like or see different problems in the world you know i you could turn to conspiracy theory 
And like I've seen, I, I know people that have like turned to conspiracy theory and like use that to explain um, the woes of the world. But I don't think that that's what they're getting at with Truman. And I think part of that is because it doesn't like he doesn't fixate as much on, I guess, the intricacies of the Sea Haven world as much as he as he just liberates himself from it. Yeah, I don't know. I because th- I think that that's that's like that level of consciousness. Like you can you can have like because I don't think that being like li- believing in conspiracy theories is like a like a necessarily a deeper level of consciousness. Like you're not understanding reality or like the 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 uh, the rhythms of reality. In, you're not really questioning those rhythms. Um, oftentimes, um, you're more questioning the. I don't really know what you're questioning. I just I just thought it was interesting because I feel like I've seen that and I've maybe used that as a defense against conspiracy theories. Like like for instance people who are anti anti-vax. Yeah. It's like okay, like like they're going to put a microchip in the in the COVID vaccine, right? And it's uh-huh. like I think the the a lot of times the argument against that is okay, so you believe that every single scientist in the world is in on this conspiracy and it's not like been, you know, and it's it's somehow ever, like they're all coordinating together to like make this up. And I feel yeah. like that's exactly in that moment, that's exactly what Meryl's saying. She's yeah. like, you really think that this entire town is all coordinated just to like dupe you and we're all just out here like yeah. duping you. And I just, I just thought that that was interesting. It made me think, I don't know what it made me think exactly about, but it was yeah. interesting. <laughs> well, let me throw something out there um, that is really interesting. You know, I took uh, anthropology classes um, from a folklorist and folklore is really interesting because in oftentimes the framework for culture is framed around performance. And, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why what you're saying didn't fully like cross my mind because when you frame, let me put it this way, like culture is so big and so broad. I think that culture really is, is something that we perform in, in a lot of ways. And like, we, we, th- that sounds like normal, like, oh, we perform our music and we perform our different, you know, whatever, like those sort of shallow culture things, but even like the, in the deepest sense, the norms are things that are performative and the, the, uh, the norms are things that are performative and so are the values and the customs and the, the reality is something that's performed. And so I think that the difference between like Truman's experience in a lot of ways and like the typical experience, if we were to take Truman and uh, you know, plaster him back onto the rest of the world or onto like a a deeper sort of understanding would be um, the fact that, Truman is, or the actors in Seahaven, they know that they're actors. Whereas if we were to take it and make it an allegory for our lives, probably the people, the actors would not also be actors or they wouldn't know that they're actors. They would just sort of be performing the norms, like like the routines, the um, like, and even the things that Truman points mm-hmm. out, like the people like circling around the block, you know? And he's like, they yeah. just keep coming, they just keep coming. And those people know that they're doing it because they're actors and they're paid to do it. And maybe there's a little, but there's, but there's people in our lives that perform that same function is what you're saying. Yeah. Basically, but, but like, but they it, don't, 
necessarily know that they're acting, but yeah. they're performing a function in our life that creates this normalcy. Yes, like the, exactly. things, these things we can depend on to always be there and to always happen and, or that are just like happening in the background that we don't think too much about because yeah. they're just the way it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and so I think that it would be a whole separate podcast and I, we don't have time to get into it now, but I, th- I mean, like, obviously like the experience with this podcast is like, thinking of like the self or thinking it's like looking at the watching it watching this film through Truman's eyes but like I think that all of us are Meryl as well you like we're all Marlin as well you know we're all the the actors of Sea Haven as well but we're also all Truman so there you have a little bit of our struggle to reason with the idea that you know we're we're connecting with the character of Truman but also the character of Truman kind of looks like these conspiracy theorists and these others that that, that are quite troubling to, to those that are socially conscious. And I do think that we did an okay job with coming up with some ways of understanding that. Um, I feel good about the idea that, you know, we're acknowledging that while the conspiracy theorist, you know, recognizes the um, the deceptions of society it's all constructed as sort of this intentional, um, hyper-organized or hyper-managed, um, unrealistic in a lot of ways, um, venture. Whereas maybe the socially conscious um, is recognizing the deception or the violence of society as something that that is inherent to its rhythms, that is inherent to... Um, the, the the macro scale uh, movements of society and is within our nature and within uh, embedded within society and i think that a lot of it does have to do with understanding truman not as somebody who's under who is coming to the realization of a conspiracy but someone who's coming to the realization of appearance versus reality and this is a philosophical question that that dates back as long as as humans can really remember um, the most famous probably in Plato's allegory of the cave, but also Black Elk, the Lakota holy man, gives a very similar um, philosophical uh, rendering that, that talks about the difference between appearance and reality. And that this journey that, that Truman goes on and can also be understood in that way. And then understanding how that contributes to a socially conscious um, approach to the world. From here, Jacqueline and I, we continue talking about these different ways that, that Truman is pulled back away from, from questioning his reality, starting with religion and then moving on to media and other things, and eventually making our way to really grappling with the idea of violence. Okay, let's see. One more thing I want to ask you about before I go into a couple other things. Um, okay. Do you feel like there was any weird, and I just touched on this a little bit because we talked about institutions of our upbringing and stuff like that. Um, was there any things in this film where you had weird feelings about, re- or like religious, let's just talk about religious overtones, religious things with the film. Did, did you catch any of that? Yeah, I think that they, um, well, love Marlon like mentions uh, like the big guy a lot. Like Marlon yeah. seems to be like the, <laughs> Marlin. The religious. He's the one who's like inserting religion into different places. Yeah. Um, like I think there's a part where they're looking at like the sunset and he says something about the big um, guy's the best artist. 
He yeah, said something something, like something about God. And then um, but then I thought that that was interesting because later on Kristoff like literally controls the sun. Yeah. But yeah, so I thought that was interesting because I feel like Marlon Marlon brings up God uh specifically talking about a sunset and then later on Kristoff has that line where he's like cue the sun <laughs> yeah and so i thought that was interesting and then i think i think there's Ooh, yeah. another part where where christoph like refers to himself as the creator yes and there re- is. refers to truman as as like the star uh yep you are the star So yeah i felt i felt like there was some definitely some like religion religious themes kind of thrown in that way but not like super overtly just kind no. of subtly like that yeah well i yeah i i agree there was some and I, you know, like I, this podcast is all about sort of supposed to be about violence. And so I try to think about religion's place in violence. Um, and religion has played like a really big role in violence <laughs> in throughout history, you know, especially Christianity since, you know, Constantine, it's been like the religion of empire and uh, in a lot of ways, the religion of imperialism and oppression. And I'm trying to think like, how does this film like relate to that? And um, I felt like, well, I've always felt that Kristoff in some ways represents some type of like God. I don't think that he is a God or I don't think he's supposed to be a God, but I think that his role is supposed to almost, or I guess maybe I'm projecting this, but I feel like I can make a case for his role representing a common conceptualization of God, um, if that makes sense. Like a way that God is often understood is as this sort of this this dome creator right this yeah like like the great puppeteer yes the great puppeteer the dome creator the the one who animates the world in a way where people don't question the world around them but they are they are just sort of in the routine and they feel very comfortable and very secure. And I feel like in the modern age, especially that's what, that's what American Christianity in a lot of ways has become. Whereas like, you know, you know, Jesus was this renegade and this, this, you know, he had a rebellious nature um, and broke laws and, and broke norms, especially whereas, and and really pushed people out of their comfort zone. And um, to and even for all we can believe, you know, that he he was not always in his own comfort zone. You know, the the scripture describes him as a man of constant sorrow, you know, so it's like he obviously wasn't like always he wasn't happy. You know, he was he was but like Christianity has become here's this injection into your life. Take it. Here's your dome. This is where you'll be happy. Don't break out of the dome and you'll have a normal life. And so I felt like this, and and how is that violent? Well, you could argue that maybe it's violent to the Christian. Maybe I mean I mean ignorance is bliss in some ways, and I guess maybe that is a blissful life, and maybe it's not ignorant. But I think definitely it it, and not to quote not to come out in my first episode and quote you know the demon of of neoliberals Karl Marx, but you know Marx has this <laughs> quote where he says um, Christianity is the opium of the masses. Right. And it's it's like the, the reason why the world is able to sort of roll on while it's like stomping on so many people's lives. The way that society is set up is oftentimes because of different ways that we're pacified and ways that we're um, our consciousness is is lowered. And is and this is, goes back to the culture industry thing. It's the same sort of deal. It's like the TV and everything like that gets us to maybe not think as much, but also 
religion can do the same thing. And so I thought that was an interesting um, tone there. Uh, something interesting that I noticed about the film that I think connects to what you were just saying is that in the beginning of the film, before he's really started questioning things, there are like a series of odd, like strange stuff that happens. And, but there's always like a, a someone who swoops in and gives like a very quick explanation for it. Yeah. And so he just kind of like cruises along. And I think that Christianity sometimes does that. Like yeah. someone, like someone will have like a big question about the world or the universe or whatever. And rather than, than like allowing for like a deeper exploration of that question, sometimes Christianity just like sweeps, like swoops in with like a really simple, simple explanation. That's kind of just like, okay, here's the explanation, move on, like keep on living your life. Yeah, Don't keep worry on, about it. Yeah. Just like cruise around in your little, in your little box or whatever. Yes. Yeah. That is really interesting. And, and, and maybe, and that's, I think part of the, the, uh, the genius of the film is that it shows how not only like there's a, there could be a religious aspect to it. And that's maybe one of the more muted ways that that happens in the film, but definitely the, the other sort of avenues, like his car radio is constantly telling him to stop questioning things. And even like, Oh, and this his is mom, one, his mother is like mom, one of those yeah. agents. His mom swoops in and like and and just has always like a real quick explanation for things yeah. that that like gives him enough to make him feel like he's not crazy, but also like gives him an explanation to make him like move on. Like when he thinks he sees his dad, she's yeah. she's like so she seems like so compassionate. She's like she's like I see oh his honey, face I all see the time. Him, yeah. I see his face in the face of strangers all the time. And <laughs> we just have to move on. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. It's like a benevolent violence. Yes. That is a thing. Yes. No, no, no. It <laughs> I don't is. know all the terms, but yeah. My sister is obviously really intelligent. You know, she's a professor of chemistry and a, a teacher of chemistry at the high school level as well. And has always been someone whose someone who's intellect that I admire and she's showing here that she could give me a run for my money probably in, in sort of being an understanding of, of the social sciences and things like that. But she hits such a, a piece of wisdom here in this term benevolent violence. And I want to expand on that and, and, and go a little bit deeper on that term because it does sound like an oxymoron and something that doesn't make much sense, but it's so vital to what this podcast is all about. And so I'm going to read an excerpt from an essay called The Color of Violence written by Hanani K. Trask, who is a Hawaiian scholar, activist, and Hawaiian nationalist. And these are some of the words that she has to say. And look for this term that's very similar to what Jacqueline calls benevolent violence. Settlers have no interest in or concern about our native people. Settlers of all colors come to Hawaii for refuge, for relaxation. They do not know, nor do they care, that white sugar planters overthrew our native government in 1893 with the willing aid of the American troops, that our islands were annexed in 1898 against the expressed wishes of our native people, that our political status as Hawaiian citizens was made impossible by forced annexation to the United States. Most non-natives think we should be grateful for the alleged opportunity of American citizenship, even if this has meant termination as an independent country. How do we as a terminated people understand the color of violence? We look at all the non-native settlers and tourists around us and know we are subjugated in our own land. 
suffering landlessness and poverty, consigned by the American government to the periphery of our own country, to its prisons and shanties, to its welfare rolls, hospital wards, and graveyards. We exist in a violent and violated world, a world characterized by peaceful violence. As Franz Fanon so astutely observed, this is the peaceful violence of historical dispossession, of racial, cultural, and economic subjugation and stigmatization. Our psychological suffering and our physical impairments are a direct result of this peaceful violence, of the ordered realities of confinement, degradation, ill health, and early death. And so this is a heavy but important explanation by Haunani K. Trask of this term, peaceful violence, that I think relates directly to this benevolent violence that we see being exercised towards Truman. And it's just the surface of this conversation of trying to understand the word violence in different contexts and in different shades. And so me and Jacqueline continue down that path of trying to unravel what what exactly is violence and in what ways is Truman the victim of violence. I don't know if it's like a meaningful quote, but it was like it was like another one of those scenes where like just what he said just hit me and I was like, oh man, I gotta think about that. Um yeah. it's when he very first starts to think things are weird and he kind of has like a freak out in the middle of the road and then he runs into that building and he goes to the elevator. Yeah. And then he sees he sees like on the other end of the elevator, it's like the studio. It's like yeah. obviously not, right? Whatever. It's not so an then elevator. he starts like yeah, he starts like yelling and then the security guys like drag him out. And as he's being dragged out, he yells, he yells like, I'm going to report you. And like when he said that, I was like, oh, man, this is the depth of his Ooh. like of his like prisonership is. I don't know if that's like even a Ooh, word, but the depth yeah. like he is really trapped. And I feel like it it helped it like it. I don't know. It like relates to what am I trying to say? It highlights like a systemic problem. Like yeah. he is trapped by the system. He has yeah. no, like he, his first instinct is to say, I'm going to report you because he's trying to like fix the problem through the system. And like, he, he, he can't do that. Cause I don't think he hasn't realized yet at that point that like the entire yeah. system is what's hold, like holding him prisoner. And that was a moment for me that I was like, whoa, <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I didn't even, that is such a good, that is such a good thought. No, that's really, really interesting. And that like, that like expands. Cause I think that this year, 2020 has been like a big year where words like systemic have like entered mm -hmm. into like even more mainstream vocabulary. Um, you know, a lot of it related to the, um, the murder of George Floyd and like the protests that followed and sort of the, everything to do with like the police and people are like, you know, there's sort of the typical, you know, racism is dead. And then there's, you know, like, you know, all lives matter. And then there's like the people that are saying like, no, like systemic racism is a thing or systemic issues, like systemic problems. And this, yeah, you're absolutely right. This film is like a great way to grapple with that concept because of exactly what you're saying, thinking about a system like he has on paper, uh, at the, the most at like the most rudimentary level Truman has all of the freedoms and all of the prosperity and all of the opportunities really 
kind of that you could expect, but he's still he's still stuck because the system is just like it's like you said it's like imprisoning him that that actually lines up with one of the profound like this what this quote is like actually kind of a profound quote that i that i thought of but uh-huh. um Chris, christoph basically makes that exact point when in that same interview right where he's interviewing with the tv guy yeah and sylvia calls in uh-huh. and they get into it and um and she t- she says to Kristoff like he's not a performer he's a prisoner um and then this his answer is he could leave at any time if his was more than just a vague ambition if he was absolutely determined to discover the truth there's no way we could prevent him i think what's distressing you is that ultimately truman prefers his cell as you call it like he is basically Ooh. describing the system he's yeah. he's saying he's saying what people are always say which is like about like for instance about poverty like well they could they could pull themselves up by their bootstraps they could hunker down and they could they could rise out of poverty if they wanted to if they really really wanted to if they were determined enough to break out they could yeah um when it's like could they though like yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. and i i've heard a quote similar to i'm glad you brought up the bootstraps because a quote that i've heard is just like and i feel like somebody significant coined this but like you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you have no boots. Right. And like, that's a systemic thing, right? It's like, there's no, like the upper, the actual, the opportunity is really not there, especially once you look at like the macro scale. Cause like, obviously Truman show is an individualized film. Like it's like this Truman is an individual human. And like when we're talking about like systemic violence or we're talking about sort of like broad stroke social issues, we're talking about macro levels like issues. So you can always point to like these individual instances of people breaking out, but you know, macro scale, um, you know, it, that's, that's a really profound way to look at it. And I think that even Christoph's line that he says right before the one you just quoted is interesting. And it, it sort of reflects back on some of the stuff we were talking about earlier with like, what does normal even mean? And cause Christoph says to her, I've given Truman the chance to lead a normal life. The world, the place you live in, is the sick place. Sea Haven is the way the world should be. So once again, and unsurprisingly, Jacqueline has done a superb job at explaining a term that's kind of like a like a buzzword right now, and that's systemic violence or systemic racism. So important for us to understand. And I think that the description of Truman's experience um, is, is a good way to look at it. But I'm going to try to expand on it a little bit here. And perhaps that framework that is given to us through the film can contribute to uh, deepening some understandings in some more traditional ways. So a scholar and theorist named Johann Galtung, he's often called the father of peace studies, is a place where I learned about violence in a lot of ways, understanding violence. And he has this sort of famous violence triangle that describes three aspects of what violence is. And he doesn't use the word systemic, although I kind of feel like the word systemic works. Um, But he uses three different terms, direct violence, structural violence, and cultural violence. And so direct violence is what we normally think of as violence and something that Truman experiences to a, a sort of a minimal um, degree. 
he experiences some violence um, when he's on the seas and he experiences a little bit of violence when he's forcibly removed or, or pushed different places. And he experiences some direct violence in the sense that he isn't, he is, you know, physically being uh, imprisoned. But Gao Tung essentially describes direct violence as behaviors that threaten life, diminish one's capacity to meet basic human needs. And so this is any type of injurious harm, killing, maiming, assault, and emotional manipulation. Then it gets a little interesting as we move underneath the surface and we look at the more macro scale, but also um, the less visible forms of violence. Gautung talks about structural violence, and these are systematic ways in which certain groups are hindered from access, equal access to opportunities or goods or services or anything that really enables them to have fulfillment, the fulfillment of their basic human needs. And these are structural things. They can be things like apartheid in South Africa. It was a legal structure. Or it could be something like limited access to education or healthcare because of a group's marginalized status or their geographical location. That's how violence is put into a structure and put forth against certain people. And then cultural violence is the next piece that Gao Tung describes. And he calls this sort of the existence of prevailing or prominent norms or beliefs or ideas that make the direct and, and structural violence seem natural, seem normal, seem right, or at the very least seem acceptable or justified. And so I think we can see a lot of this in our world today. And a lot of social theorists right now are talking about this idea of colorblindness as a form of cultural violence, meaning the idea that we, we don't look at race at all and we pretend that race doesn't exist is an, one form of cultural violence in that it sanitizes and 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 subverts any efforts to sort of undo structural racism. And so that's another way to understand violence. And this word systemic that Jacqueline brings up and uses this metaphor from the movie to explain could be described in this way. And I want to I want to look at two other ways that this has been described, this systemic violence. The next one is from another theorist, Slavoj Žižek. And Žižek talks about two different kinds of violence, and he calls it subjective and objective violence. He describes subjective violence as these visible forms of violence, very similar to Gao Tung's direct violence. And he makes the distinction that there's always a subject, or pretty much always a subject, that has been or could be identified as the perpetrator of these kinds of acts. Someone who's done the threatening, someone who's done the, the damage or the killing or the assault of some kind. And this subjective violence is, in Zizek's description, is distinct in another way in that it is often seen as a perturbation of the norm. Meaning that what is considered normal, when that is violated, when those things are broken, that's usually when we see this type of violence. And so this kind of describes why, you know, for instance, police officers are often, you know, on a daily basis, 
participating in direct violence. And I'm sort of saying that even from an objective point of view, they, they do things that are violent. They injure people, confine people, et cetera, et cetera. But because that's part of our norm, we often don't see it as an act of subjective violence, as Zizek would put it. So on the other side, he talks about objective violence, which he describes as the violence that is inherent to this very norm. And so the normal way of doing things, the culture or the society um, has produced some type of normal and that there is a violence that is exercised through that normal. And a perturbation of the norm oftentimes is what breaks up these types of things. And so this description takes what we have from Gautung and, and deepens that even more to think about this objective violence. And this objective violence is something that he describes as not having a, a particular subject or a particular perpetrator who's exercising it, meaning that I'm not necessarily an actor of structural violence. I'm a, a person that's maybe doing something that's violent or I'm, I'm supporting structural violence, but the structure is what's doing the violence. And if we're talking about systemic violence, um, as Jacqueline talked about, then it's the system that's doing it. It's not necessarily that there's any particular person that is doing that violence. There are people that are supporting the system. So maybe indirectly they're doing violence, but the system is what's doing the violence and perpetrating the harm or the deprivation or the hindering of, of equal opportunity. So those two different, those two angles are two angles to look at and understand this idea of systemic violence a deeper form of violence, a deeper way of understanding what violence is. The last one I'm going to go to is probably the most relevant and the most uh, directly uh, salient to the realistic context that most of us are going to be thinking about these types of issues. And that is this word intersectionality, something that was coined by Kimber Kimberly Crenshaw. And this sort of is this idea that at the intersections of these structural or cultural violences and direct violences is where an increased degree of harm is being done or an increased degree of hindrance to equal opportunity is being done or an increased degree of prejudice and discrimination are being exercised. And so she sort of identifies that society may have ways that it's structurally and culturally violent towards women and also has ways that it's structurally and culturally violent towards people of color. And so women of color are at a particularly difficult location. And the same could be said for members of the LGBTQ plus community that are also holding identities that, that make them at an intersection of different types of violence. And so all of this can be sort of framed back into that term that Jacqueline brings up in talking about the Truman Show, which is this idea of systemic violence, this idea that you know, Truman says, I'll report you, but there's nothing he can really do. There's this, there's this sense of stuckness. And there's also this sense that it's bigger than the two security guards throwing him out of the building. It's the system itself. In this case, Sea Haven, the dome itself, that actual structure is what is exercising violence against Truman. And so taking that understanding and trying to portray that back onto the way that we see the world is one way that we can grapple with the violence that's inherent to our world and also find ways to be allies and to, to work against this. And I'm really 
glad that Jacqueline brought this up. This is one half of the really big reason why I chose the Truman Show as the first topic of conversation for the Pop Violence podcast, because if we can begin with this framing of the word violence and understand it in that way, as we go through the next 11 episodes and through the next six months, we can talk about these different pieces of pop culture and how they relate to not only direct violence, but these deeper understandings of what the word violence means. And so coming from this sort of important, but, but kind of a dark understanding, as we grapple with that, I want to move towards another piece that's very, very important to this podcast as a whole. And that's thinking about and talking about Truman's escape and the way Truman was able to get out of Sea Haven and what sorts of things lend, lended themselves to that escape. And so that's where me and Jacqueline go next. And if you're okay with it, I think that at this point, you probably feel like you've heard enough of me narrating. And so I think I'm just going to let the track run and let the conversation come to its finish in a natural way. The things that lead to his escape, I think, are reflect back on like some of the things that we're talking about. And so I don't know, I sent you that question beforehand. Did you have any like big thoughts on that at all? So I think that that, I mean, I don't know if this is a big thought at all, but um, I think that was the, the only part of the movie that truly like wasn't spoiled. Like I didn't, I, because I, I'd never seen it before. I didn't know if he was going to like make it or not. Yeah. Like, yeah, well, you know, at that very end scene where Kristoff basically tells him, like, I don't know, he he presents to him the choice to, like, walk through that door and leave or to not. And yeah. I, I honestly, like, didn't, I didn't know what he was going to do. I, but I, but I definitely was, like, was, like, pulling for him to leave. And I think that the, the creators of the movie were probably wrote it that way. Like, yeah. you, you, you were, you were supposed to be rooting for him to leave. Um, which I think is interesting. And then, uh, but also I think as much as I was rooting for him to leave, I also was, was like very, I don't know, like empathetic to like the reasons for him to have wanted to just be like, to just stay. Yeah. Like, I think like I would have understood if he had just stayed, I would have been like, okay, like that kind of sucks, but like, I would have got it if that makes sense. Yeah, no, totally. Like I feel, I think th- this time watching it, the the number one emotion I felt as he was standing there on the stairs before he says his final line, which is like one of my favorite moments in any movie I've ever seen. But one of the, the biggest emotion I can identify that last scene was just, I felt so scared for him. Like I was like scared for like what he's going, like what he's walking into. Um, you know, he's 30 years old and he's, he's walking he's never experienced life really well uh, well maybe he has though i don't know but like he's never he's i mean it's just like what is he what what is on the other side of that door like it's it's like it's sort of terrifying you know but i think it's supposed to be and i don't think i don't think most like i don't think like the first maybe because you had like a you had a primer but like i feel like most people the first time they watch it they're not like thinking at that level um, but like, I hope that people that are listening here, but might go back and watch it too, like, or to rethink that, like how terrifying that must have been or how terrifying that scene is, um, in like the deepest way that he's like walking into like an unknown, 
like the most like profound unknown. But he does it because, you know, he he is he has realized that he he's realized that he his the reality of Sea Haven is no longer reality, right? And I think once something loses its reality to you, it's really hard to like go back to it. You know, like I feel that way about my own myself. Like it's like I'm, it's hard for me to certain things that like I've. I've been like narrated into my life at some points. And now I've like realized that they're just narratives. It's like, I can't just like go back to, I can't go back to believing in Santa Claus, you know, like I'm not (laughs) going to go back and be like, Oh yeah. Like, no, that's, I'm going to like reintegrate that. And, you know, so like, I think Truman was, he he was beyond that, but it was terrifying because he could have gone back into the comfort of Sea Haven. Yeah. It was definitely like, yeah, a comfort thing. A comfort thing. And also just like a safety thing and like a, like a, it goes back to like the Christianity thing we're talking about. And even like the, just like the pacification thing, like, just like you can live a comfortable content life um, and never, and never break out of like levels of reality that you're living in. And that's, that's the decision that Truman decided to make. But I, I think that part of his escape, this is something that I was thinking about this time around. There's like some obvious ways I feel like that his escape is made possible. And like, I want to talk about like two ways that I find very interesting. And this relates directly to like what this podcast is all about in a lot of ways. Truman's escape. I think really the only reason it's possible is because of the outside world. So the only reason he's able to get to the outside world is because the outside world um, influence on Sea Haven. And I think that that's like, there's like kind of like two two ways that the outside world is influencing his his life in Sea Haven. And number one is I think the more simple way and also the less impactful way. And that is the outside world where they actually made attempts to reach out to him. And the biggest example is Sylvia, but they show like a bunch of other examples and even like his father figure coming back and all that weird stuff, that whole thing. But I think the bigger way and the more impactful way that Sea Haven, his experience in Sea Haven is 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 sort of coming to an end because of the outside world, is 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 almost the the, the exact things we've been talking about, and that is the fact that Sea Haven is a show that is for the outside world, in order for it to be presentable and to be this experience that everyone has on the outside there needs to be reflections of the outside inside of Sea Haven. And I think, cause let me put it this way. If this is Truman's only reality is Sea Haven. And so how is he ever supposed to think that there's anything else? So why would he ever question it? You know? So like, for instance, like the very first thing that happens in the film, the light falls from the sky. So if Truman was taught from the very beginning of his life, we live in a dome and or the sky or the sky has lights in it and the lights fall down sometimes and he was taught that from the time he was two years old all the way up and that was just normal then he wouldn't have questioned that right but because it's a tv show the truman show is a tv show they they have it narrated in a way that he thinks it's the same reality that the people on the outside um are living and so that they they see his experience as like something that is meaningful to them and so because they've set the the show itself has set up a standard for what normal is or what reality is that is there to please or to um to be presentable to the outside world 
then Truman has an idea of what the outside world is like or what something beyond his own reality is like. And therefore he has these, these points where things start to feel wrong um, and start to feel like they're not real. Um, and so I was thinking, I, I was thinking that exact thing when he has the conversation with Marlon, where he shows him the golf ball uh-huh. and he's like, here's us. And on the other side, here's Fiji. Yeah. And I was thinking like, if they really wanted to keep him from like leaving, why didn't they just like teach him in school that like the earth was flat? Yeah. Or you that know? like, or that like Sea Haven was the entire world. Like they could, they, yeah. like hypothetically, they could have just taught him that Sea Haven was the entire world. And he would never have to worry, like he could go explore, like, and he would know like that's the edge of the world. And he, he yeah. had been taught that, but yeah, they had to, but they want, I think that, you know, the reason that they would have taught him otherwise is, is because, you know, they, the, the world itself seeped into the presentation of the show. And I just, I find that really fascinating because that, I don't think that was intentional. Like the show wouldn't have intentionally done that but i think secretly not secretly but how do i put this in some way it still reflects it like it still reflects the deeper reality or like a different another layer of reality and it still reflects like the violence of the whole the whole dome the whole sea haven it can't it can't fully camouflage itself because of just because it's connection to what's to to more i mean like i guess the world is just it it finds a way to be connected um in a way and i think that and let me just put in a plug now for for my, my podcast and this is like a big reason why i did the truman show for my first episode was because it's because that's what i'm trying to do in 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 every episode of this is to not just do the typical things of, you know, I mean, and like, and I'm not knocking these efforts at all, but there's so many, there's so much, uh, there's so much discourse out there that prompts people to be critical thinkers and to critically examine our patterns of thinking and the, the routines of society and, and all these different um, things. And to really try to understand and to grasp uh, systems of oppression and, and, and history and th- and all these different topics that I want to cover through this podcast, but I'm trying to do that, uh, that, that, that discourse exists, but I think that it sort of exists like on its own. And, um, it is, it's people share it with each other and it, oftentimes it's very salient and, and people resonate with it. But I also think just like the Truman show itself reveals itself the violence of its own structure um through the um it reveals the violence of its own structure through its presentation through the fact that it's a piece of media um i also think that our own society does the same thing in the sense that we have these shows and these movies and the this music and other things in pop culture and so much of it is just there to sort of entertain us and to be consumed and it's just a big part of the consumerism wheel that is just continually turning but i also think that it it is it's revelatory in some ways and it and like the systems that are that exist and the 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 violence uh, of human society and and all that is still manifest in 
in our pop culture. And at the end of the day, I think that that is going to be the, uh, that, that can be the undoing, that can be the place where we find, we find liberation and connect it with different ways to theorize about the world. And I will bring that in for my last, like one of my last little like final plugs here goes back to the, the feminist theorist, uh, Bell Hooks. And she has a paper where she talks about this idea of theory, of theorizing about how the world operates and why things are the way that they are and why humans are the way they are and things like that, that she says that in her young life, she tried to thrust that upon people or to, to not to thrust it upon people, but to, but to sort of try to get people to believe in this certain theories, things like that. And she said that the more effective um, motor that um, theory has is, a, is one of liberation, that theory to theorize and to, and to explore different understandings of the world, potential understandings of the world, or uh, explore the imaginations about the world is really like an act of liberation. Um, and I think that that's really what's depicted through the Truman Show as well, is that he, he's getting a new ideas in the most figurative sense, in in reality, I guess, of the show, he's he's breaking out physically. But if we sort of liken it unto ourselves, we're breaking out mentally or breaking out intellectually. That that is that liberation of uh, gaining new theories, gaining new potential ways of understanding. Oh yeah, so there's a lot to it. There's so much to it. <laughs> yeah. You can speak. television show that gives hope and joy and inspiration to millions. And who am I? You're the star. Was nothing real? You were real. That's what made you so good to watch. Listen to me, Trinidad. There's no more truth out there than there is in the world I created for you. Same lies. The same deceit. But in my world, you have nothing to fear. I know you better than you know yourself. You never had a camera in my head. Afraid. That's why you can't leave. Okay, I understand. I have been watching you your whole life. I was watching when you were born. I was watching when you took your first step. You can't leave, Truman. You belong here. Say something, goddammit! You're on television! You're live to the whole world!
I don't see ya. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night.